Please take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 13. And as you turn there, I just want to express my gratitude uh, for the opportunity to be here this morning and to open up the Word of God with you. Uh, I'm excited to be here at such a time as this, uh, during the season of the ministry going on here at at 180. And uh, I know that you guys are coming off an epic week at Camp Regen a little while ago, and I know there's some of you have made a profession of faith in Jesus uh, for the first time, maybe, and and other of you were encouraged and excited to uh, love him more. And still, there's some of you who maybe still don't think that Jesus is all that big of a deal. And so I've been so impressed as I've kind of listened to some of the messages leading up to this week that your leaders have been really intentional to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to draw your attention. I want to show you the cleansing love of Jesus in John chapter 13. So let's go to the Word and read together, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who, needs, who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet... You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. May the Lord use His Word to change all of our lives this morning. Who do you imitate? Who are you following? 
You know, for most, it's those whom we most look up to, those whom we pay attention to. Um, you know, the athletes, they look at men like Tom Brady and LeBron James, or for the women, maybe it's Katie Ledecky, Simone Biles, the American Olympians, right? But in our brave new world, there's also a lot of major influencers. You know, you have Instachat, Snapgram, Facetube, and Ubook, or whatever they're called. You know, the point is, there's a lot of people trying to impact you, trying to shape the way you live your life, right? Those you begin to watch the most are the ones you're going to begin to mimic. You're going to act like them. You're going to speak like them. You're going to even start to think like them. So I ask you again, who do you follow? Whose example are you imitating? Who are you most captivated by? And what is the result? We all know that the good Sunday school answer would be Jesus, right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? And that's what I must do also, right? But instead of just telling you that you need to imitate Jesus more than you imitate professional athletes or Instagram influencers, I want to bring you near to Jesus in this passage so that he might impact you personally. I want you to be impressed by the love of Jesus. So as we study John 13 together, I'm asking you to fix your attention on the beauty of Jesus' cleansing love so you'll be compelled to follow him, to love him more, and to love like him more. We're going to look at this passage kind of in two parts. Verse 15 basically breaks it into that basic outline for us. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. So first we're going to look closer at Jesus' example of love in verses 1 to 11. Verse 1 begins with John's short comments, a brief context setting, right? He says that this is coming up to the feast of the Passover, Everything we read from there on in this event, the scene unfolds, verse 2, during supper. So we think right away, we're in this room, this upper room. It would have been an open dining room on the second level of a house. And this place has been prepared specifically for Jesus to gather his 12 disciples with him and partake of the Passover feast alone, away from the crowds, away from the noise. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in that room, dining with Jesus without distractions, right? This is, this is somewhere I would hope you would want to be, near Jesus. Then it's also important to note the significance of Passover, right? Uh, this is the third Passover mentioned in the book of John, uh, which is how we know that Jesus' public ministry was three years But the Passover is not just good for counting the years of Jesus' life. No, it was a major event in the life of Israel. You would know this because you studied the book of Exodus last spring, right? The Passover signified the slaughter of a lamb for the deliverance from the 10th plague in the Exodus out of Egypt. Passover became a reminder that at the sacrifice of a lamb, God delivers his people from captivity. And in the book of John, every Passover feast marked, it it indicated an important development in the life of Jesus as well. 
verse or chapter 2, Jesus went during the first Passover up to Jerusalem and he, he cleansed the temples. He flipped the tables. He chased out the animals and spilled all the coins all over the floor as a condemnation of the hypocrisy in their sacrificial system. In chapter 6, uh, Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000 with bread from heaven, signifying that he was the bread of life and that he brings a greater rescue than Moses. Here in chapter 13, Jesus will bring these themes together. He wants to show us that he is the one who provides spiritual cleansing through his one perfect, unblemished sacrifice. Ultimately, the Passover in John draws our eyes away from the bloody slaughter of a baby sheep to the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. You see, everything in John 13 and moving on from here happens in the shadow of the cross. Look down again at verse 1. You see in the second part there, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart of this world. And first, don't miss the omniscience of Jesus, that he knows everything, that he knew things that had not yet happened This is important. John is showing us that Jesus is God. But in this moment, in these moments leading up to the cross, Jesus' mind was filled with his crucifixion. He did everything he did in light of that coming moment. All the chapters leading up to this point in John have been saying, his hour had not yet come, his hour had not yet come. But now, alas, his hour had come, and he was in his mind fixated on his, his hour, the death, that he would die for sinners, the resurrection, and his ascension back up to the Father. It was because of that foreknowledge that he does exactly what he does here in this chapter. It is the foreknowledge of his death, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father that he, that he wanted to show his disciples his cleansing love. Look at that final part in verse 1. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Love is the staging of chapters 13 to 17. It's surrounded. It's flooding these chapters. The upper room is all about love. It's about Jesus' love for his disciples and his call to them to love others. And the word love itself is used 35 times in these four chapters. Love is the the ringing theme here. With the horror of Calvary coming closer and closer, Jesus' love is only magnified, it's elevated, it's lifted up and put right into our face. So first we see that Jesus' love flows with an eager selflessness, right? Can you think of the last time you were faced with a great pain, a trial, a challenge, Something hard in your life. I'd ask if, was it your natural response, your natural reaction to look outside of yourself and find an opportunity to love others? Probably not, right? If you're an average person, average fallen person in a fallen world, you probably struggle to to not complain, to not have self-pity, Right? But here, Jesus, the one who was going to suffer the greatest suffering that any man has ever endured, the suffering on the cross, was completely selfless. 
No complaining, no humble brag even that, you know, how great his willingness to die for the father was. No, he had none of that, none of himself. He was simply resolved to love those around him. As the scene progresses, Jesus' love gets even more astonishing as he clothes himself in humility. There are three movements in verses two to four that kind of jerk our minds up and down and and go from the low depths of hell to the supremacy and the heights of heaven of Jesus Christ and then back to the lowly state of a slave. Jesus, faced with Judas, verse two, verse three, sorry, verse two, during supper, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, right? What depravity, what unthinkable evil, right? The man who had walked around with the only perfect person in human history for three years, seeing his holiness, his righteousness, his compassion and mercy, and to stab him in the back, turn around and betray him, right? What does Jesus do? Right? What does he do? Well, let's look. Look at what he knows. Again, he knows that the Father had given him all things. He knows that he was the one who was rightfully the place of the seed in heaven. Right? He had all that. All things have been given to him by the Father. He was unmatchable. Now, let me ask you a question. How would you treat Judas if you were Jesus? How would you respond to him? What is your natural reaction to those who sell out on you? Right? Maybe the, the chick who acts like your friend at school, but then you find out she's just spreading rumors behind your back to destroy your reputation. Or you find out someone's just hanging out with you because they think they can gain something from you. Right? What's your first response? How do you treat that person? What do you want to do? Are you out to get even? Do you want to get backed at them, maybe ruin their lives as much as they ruin yours? That's not how Jesus treated Judas. Right? Verse 4, he repaid evil with good, even though he knew he deserved the highest place in heaven. With Judas right there in the room, he gets up from supper, lays aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. He put on the clothing of a slave. He wrapped himself In humility, he got lower. He got down to the ground on his knees to serve. Even the way John writes verse 4 is stunning. He he speaks about this whole evening until we get to this point in the past tense. In the past tense. And then in this verse, he brings it into the present tense as though it's happening right there in our eyes. He's, He's trying to put it right in your face. He's trying to draw you right into the room. You would put yourself in this place with his disciples and Jesus. The narrative could be told like this. So we were there all in the room. The food was ready. We were laying down on the sides. Uh, Judas was already convinced to betray Jesus by Satan. And then Jesus, listen to this, gets up, takes off his cloak to put on the clothing of a slave. He wants you to focus on the staggering reality that God the Son took the place of a humble servant. And Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 8, puts it like this. 
Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Right? Who does this? Right? Jesus left his glory that he had in eternity with the Father in heaven, came down to earth to become one of us, to rub elbows with sinners like you and me, and then stooped even lower, became a slave. Verse 5, he pours water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus' love produced a sacrificial service. And this is love. Love is not simply emotional, romantic. Love is not passive. It is active. Love always produces action. Love moves you. It drives you to give of your time, to give of your energy, to give of yourself even for the good of the one you love. In this upper room, Jesus' love is put on beautiful demonstration in his humility and his selflessness and his sacrifice to serve his disciples. And Passover in the upper room with Jesus would have been an epic moment. You know, the, the disciples would have felt a great honor of being included in the 12 that got to hang out with Jesus that night. The room was prepared especially for them. The other gospels tell us that this was a large upper room, fully furnished. and probably tells us that it was at the house of a wealthy man. You can just imagine how pristine it was, how wonderful that room was. They walked to the house likely around sunset as the sky was filled with radiant beams of sunlight and beautiful, colorful clouds. Just the night is picturesque with color and beauty. Opening the door, they were met with the sweet aromas of grilled meat, fresh bread, uh, sweet fruit, and the smell of nice herbs and spices, right? The, the first cup of wine or grape juice had been poured, sitting bright purplish on the cup in front of them at the mat, right? This was a party. They were excited to be there. Then the men who would taking their places around the mat, they'd be laying down on their left, something like this, and their right hand would be used to partake of the food. Everything was intimate. They got to look each other in the face, even Jesus, and see him eye to eye around that table, around that food, that feast. Everything appeared pleasant in the moment, except around the outside of the circle. They're laying there, There's those dirty, stinky feet around the outside of the circle, right? Everything else was so pleasant, but there was that. They would have been smelly. They would have been dirty. They're walking around miles after miles in open-toed sandals. You can just imagine how filthy they were. And normally, foot washing was reserved for Gentile slaves. It was the lowest job of household employment, Right? Nobody else thought they were low enough to do something like that. And notice how none of the other disciples got up to do this. They all thought they were too good for foot washing. They all thought they were above this. But Jesus, the most important one in the room, 
takes the position. He brings himself outside the circle, puts him around behind them, bends down on his knees, and scrubs the dirt off their feet. Jesus is a picture of total humility. We should remember, right, Jesus' words to us that whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It is greater to give than to receive. This is a beautiful picture. It reminds us of Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. See, Jesus' love should impress you. Have you ever been served like this? Have you ever taken, have you, has anyone ever taken the position to, to bend down and wash your feet? We can all think of times people have served us. You know, I'm not talking about the, the waiter at the restaurant that brings you your food, although we should be grateful to them. I'm not even talking about the friends who help you study and get your homework done, although you definitely owe them gratitude. But I'm talking about someone getting into the most shameful place in your life and removing your humility. It would be like if you, you know, fell for one of those ridiculous credit card schemes. You know, nobody does that. Hi, I'm calling to inform you that your great uncle, twice removed, was killed in an earthquake in Istanbul. And guess what? He left you $4.6 million as your sole benefactor. You know, nobody falls for that. But if you did, imagine the embarrassment you would feel once you realized it was a fraud. But what if someone stepped into your place, removed that debt that you owed, removed that humiliation, removed that embarrassment for you, and made it all right? If you know Jesus, you know this kind of love. Right? Costly love, self-sacrificing love, unearned love, rescuing love, cleansing love. And see, John 13 isn't just about washing feet. John 13 is about Jesus' example of love that points to a greater sacrifice, a greater act of service to his disciples than that. It's the second part of that verse in Mark 10, 45. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' love culminates. It, it climaxes. It's completed on the cross. I think people often get caught up with the astonishing act of Jesus washing his disciples' feet here. that They miss the significance behind the drama. And that's exactly what happens to Peter, right? But he isn't alone. You know, you remember Nicodemus, he whiffed on what it meant to be born again, right? He asked, how do I climb back into my mother's belly, right? Or the Samaritan woman at the well, you know, when Jesus offers her living water, her first primary concern is, oh good, I don't have to come back to the well to draw water every day. Right? Or the Jews who thought partaking of the flesh and blood of Jesus was to commit, commit cannibalism, Right? There's many times in the Gospel of John that something physical is used to convey a spiritual truth. Peter didn't get it. Verse 6 says, he responds, Lord, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's a prime example of our inability to see things from a spiritual perspective, from a heavenly point of view. And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Then, Jesus, then Peter 
doubles down. Right? He says, never will you wash my feet. Right? Just like he had rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to die, he, he has the audacity to say no to Christ. To tell Jesus, no, this isn't going to happen. I don't care what you say. But look at Jesus' calm, patient explanation. If I, don't, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You see, the scene is not about making men less dirty on the outside. There's nothing about clean feet that makes you a follower of Jesus. You don't need to have him pour water on your feet to become his disciple. But you do need the spiritual cleansing that comes from his blood poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' warning to Peter here was that if you're not willing to accept me as a suffering servant who washes feet, then you can't partake in that greater cleansing to come. You see, it's easy to hang out with Jesus if you think he's the king that's going to set up a global kingdom. It's easy to be a student of teacher Jesus if you watch him embarrass the scribes and the, the rabbis in the debates, but it's hard. It's hard to accept that you are completely dependent on a meek and lowly lamb, that you need a dying savior, that your sins are so heinous that the son of God had to die on a cross to wash away your sin. That's hard to accept. So what does Peter say next? Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head also. You know, poor Peter, always being that example, always being that comedic relief for us, right? He's always, we can always count on him to say something he shouldn't, right? But Jesus, again, gives him a patient correction. He was bathed and he's only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Again, it's, it's not about washing the feet, Jesus clarifies here that there is a cleansing that happens once for all. There's a cleansing that you don't need to be washed again. There's a cleansing coming that is sufficient. It's enough. Hebrews 10, 10 to 12 says, By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And it goes on to paint this picture of Jesus as a high priest who, not like every other priest, who needs a return to the altar to give sacrifice day after day after day. But he gives one perfect sacrifice and sits down at the throne in heaven next to the Father. He was finished the work that he needed to do in one moment. And see, if you have taken part in Christ. You don't need another sacrifice. You don't need to be cleaned again. You are clean. If you have the death of Christ applied to your soul, you have all you need. If you don't, there's nothing you can do. Really, clean feet have nothing to do with making your soul pure. Clean feet have nothing to do with being a genuine disciple of Jesus. Notice the warning for a second time of Judas, verse 10 and 11. And you are clean, but not all of you. He knew who was betraying him for this reason, said not all of you are clean. Another glimpse into the omniscience of Jesus. He knew even before Judas had kissed his cheek to betray him that he was the betrayer. But more than that, it's a warning. Hanging around with Jesus, with Jesus' people, 
Even getting your feet washed, that is to partake in an outward act of religion, does nothing to cleanse your soul from sin. There's a great danger to be in church, to be around God's people, to be always in the place where you hear about Jesus, where you see Jesus in his word, right? That you become complacent, that you think, I'm there, I've got this. There's such a danger that we need to look to Judas as this negative example. Three years with Christ, right there in the inner circle of 12 men, still ends up betraying Jesus. You've seen Jesus' example of cleansing love in the scene, the one who was from heaven stooping down low to the place of humility. But you need to examine your heart to ask yourself, do I truly love him or not? That's the true mark of a disciple, one who loves Jesus. Later, after Peter had seen Jesus crucified, resurrected, and sent back to heaven, he did understand it, just like Jesus said. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he writes, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls to a sincere brotherly love, fervently love one another from a clean heart. Peter remembered Jesus' act of washing his feet and there was a picture pointing to the cross and he understood that Jesus loved like this, I need to love like this. That brings us to our second part of the message, that Jesus, we're going to hear Jesus' call to love. We've seen his example, now we hear his call to love as, as Jesus lays back down at dinner, puts his cloaks back on, he begins to instruct his disciples to love as he loved. I want you to see this very applicable exhortation that ties verse 12 and 17 together. Verse 12 says, do you know what I've done to you? Do you know it? Have you seen it? Are you aware of what I've done? And if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. See, it's one thing to see what Jesus' love looks like. It's one thing to understand even the spiritual significance, but it's a whole other thing to go and do likewise. Right? There is such a danger of becoming hearers of the word, but not doers. In 180, you hear a lot of the Bible. That would be my ringing warning, my word of caution to you guys as you continue to hear about Jesus and have Jesus put on display. Are you following him and to do what he does? It does no good to be here listening to this, even taking notes, if you're not going to go out and apply what you've heard. So Jesus commands his disciples to do what he did. They must walk in his footsteps. They must imitate his example, right? They must deny themselves, take up the cross daily and follow him. That only makes sense. And at the end of the chapter, restating this call to love in verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, right? It is impossible to be a Jesus follower and not love. It is impossible to be a disciple of Christ and not love as he loved. Now to finish this text, 
I want to point out some compelling reasons that Jesus gives us to follow him. First, he gives us an argument from the greater to the lesser. In verse 13 to 14, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, right? And so I am. Now, just as I, as a teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you must do also. And then in verse 16, he says, A slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. And this shouldn't be hard to understand his logic here, right? Everybody knows that he was greater. He is the king. He's the Lord. And then if he so did a sacrificial act like this, washing his disciples' feet, how much more should we who are lesser do such a thing from the greater to the lesser. It gives another example, another reason to follow him in verse 18. Uh, again, it's a, a third warning of Judas, the third warning of apostasy, of falling away, of turning your back against Jesus. If you do not, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but is that the scripture may be fulfilled he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You know, there may be some here this morning who are still not sure if you want to follow Jesus. And there might even be some of you theologically thinking brains that say a uh, theological excuse like, well, I just don't know if I'm chosen. I don't know if I'm one of God's elect. Right? Friends. Predestination is not your determination, right? God knows. It says that Jesus himself knows his chosen ones, but we don't get that privilege. Yes, God determined that Judas, even prophesied that Judas would betray the Christ, but that does not remove the responsibility from Judas, right? It was still his choice, and he was held Guilty as charged for the act that he did. You know, Judas is the example of the destructive result of choosing your own way. His life ended in guilt, trying to pay back his own debt, and he ends up hanging himself. Right? This should get your attention. It should keep you, this should repulse you from following the path of Judas. It should set your eyes on Jesus and say, that's a better way. That's the way I want to go. Next, Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe and he knows everything. Is that a good enough reason to follow Jesus and love like he loves? Verse 19, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Multiple times, Jesus' omniscience comes out in this passage. He knows everything. He knows it before it comes to pass. He, he can predict the future, right? He is all-knowing. He is omniscient because he is God. But look even specifically at the end of verse 19. The end of verse 19 says that, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Most of our English Bibles add the word he, the pronoun he at the end of that. And if you have a NASB, it says it in italics. So it kind of helps us understand that it wasn't in the original Greek passage, right? The literal translation is just that, so that you may believe that I am, ego me, a rendition of the Hebrew word for God, Yahweh. I am who I am. This is a reminder that God is eternal. He's unchanging. He's faithful to 
who he is and what he has said. And Jesus here boldly takes that on his own lips and claims to be Yahweh, the God, the eternal one who knows all things. That's a strong reason to follow Jesus and to love like he loves. But it gives us one more reason in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. See, Jesus invites us not to love just out of sheer obedience, sheer duty. He actually invites us to be with him, to be part of his mission in reaching the world, to be a picture of him out in this fallen place that we live. He invites us on this mission. You see, as a servant of Christ, a true disciple, you can be sent into the world as a representative, like, like an ambassador. You all know what an ambassador is, right? It's a person who's sent as a delegate to a foreign country. They stand in place. They, they are really the face of a nation far away. I mean, like right now, it's Ross Wilson, who is the American ambassador in Afghanistan. He's the one that stands there right now in the place of the U.S., while the nation around him is falling apart under the Taliban, right? Just like that, Christians are representatives of Jesus in the world, right? We can be standing in his place, showing people what Jesus is like. And again, as we read in John thirteen thirty five, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, That's a reason that we ought to love like Jesus loved. We ought to follow him and be his disciples because we can partake in the greatest mission ever. We can show the world Jesus. So again, who do you imitate? Who are you following? Who are you drawn to, captivated by, impressed with? That's the one that you are going to be following and imitating, mimicking. I would beg you to be impressed with the cleansing love of Jesus in this passage. So you'll leave here this morning saying, I want to love Jesus more. And I want to love like Jesus more. Don't waste your life trying to be the next LeBron or the greatest Instagram influencer. Or even mimicking some nice characteristic of uh, influence in your life without taking up your cross to follow Christ, to be like him, to imitate him, be his disciple. If you're all impressed, at all impressed by the example of Jesus' love described in John 13, then take a moment to be sure that you have partaken in his cleansing sacrifice on the cross. Turn to Jesus and repent Put your trust, put your faith in him. And then go out and be sold out for Jesus and love others like he loved. If you're not impressed, then just know that you have to be willing to tell me, to tell others around you, that the love of Jesus in this passage isn't that astonishing. It's no big deal. Now Anybody could have washed the disciples' feet His death on the cross, yeah, I've seen better love, right? 
be captivated, be impressed, be lured by the love of Jesus to follow him more and more to be like him. Let me pray with you as the band comes up for one more song. Father, we thank you for this picture of Jesus in John 13, that he would stoop low and, and serve his own, that the high king of heaven would come down to become a suffering servant, even to take the place on the cross, to die for his people, to bear their sins, bring a greater redemption than we could ever imagine. We pray that we would all be changed by seeing Jesus' love in this passage this morning. Thank you, Lord. Amen.